nation uh, with its massive amount of gods. I mean, they have literally thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of gods. Uh, We were fortunate as a family to be in Bali last year and uh, we saw some of their temples and just a a smaller arrangement of their many, many gods. Uh, We went to um, one temple, was called the Bat Temple, and these people were bowing down to these bats as they flew out of this temple. That was um, what they were bowing down to. Daily they would bring out their uh, rice offerings or their offerings to these gods and they would place this little dish out the front of the shop and that was their sacrifice or their offering to this god. Uh, lo and behold, the chooks or the birds would come in and sort of clean up all the offering and take it away again. Not sure it was meant for them, but um, that's what was taking place. And they'd come out a few hours later and they'd put another fresh offering out there for their god again. But I think that's often what we think about as we get this idea here of multiple gods. We seem to think it's some gold or wood or metal statue that somebody's bowing down to. What I'd like to see help us to see today is that the idea of a god can be far more subtle in our world than that little fat Buddha who sits in the middle of a temple in somewhere in Asia. It's far more subtle than that. It's very out there and you can see the little guy sitting in the corner of the temple. But I'd like to see today that it's, it's far more subtle in this world that we live in of gods. And what I'd like us to see that we human beings are capable of making a god out of anything. Making a god out of absolutely anything. So really that could answer our first question. Uh, Are there many gods? There are millions of gods. Literally millions of gods as we human beings make up this this sort of fabricated or this imaginary God uh, through our lives and what we devote ourselves to in worship. Millions of gods. So let me explain them. As the video shows, we are all worshippers. All worshippers. We all worship something. You and I have been created to worship. Worship, that is, that we can look at something and have total admiration for it or devotion towards it. We can be wowed by something, something greater and bigger than ourselves. And it actually feels perfectly natural to be wowed in some sense as we look at this uh, greater or bigger thing than ourselves, to be wowed by that. Perhaps we could go through a walk in the bush, and I know some of you people do that, and that's a great thing to do. We go for a walk in the bush, and we reach this lookout point that gives us this sort of vast view over this massive valley that is down there below us. And in some ways, we just say, wow. We may not physically express it, but in our heart and in our mind, we do. We actually just sort of get wowed by this massive image that is just before us. The valley is so big, and we are so small in comparison, but it still feels perfectly natural to have this sort of wow factor as we view that. Or you might see an impressive team, whether it be sporting or gymnastic or whatever they might do, complete this incredible feat. And, and you'll just marvel at, at the skills and talents these people have and they combine all this all together in teamwork and you are sort of wowed by this thing, by this uh, feat of wonderment and amazement. And this shows that we are created to be in awe of something. We're created as human beings to be in awe of something and to see something like that, which will leave us in, as I said, in wonderment. And in a sense, then we can get drawn uh, to this attraction, drawn to this, I guess you might call it the wow factor. We get drawn to it. And this next move is we get drawn by this wow factor to these things that we're looking at and admiring, is that we begin to attach ourselves to these things. It sort of becomes something we want to actually, we like it so much, we actually now want, want to attach ourselves to it so we get to experience it more and more and more. Just say it is that massive valley of scenery. 
we, we just like that uh, incredible feeling of uh, seeing this enormity and this massiveness. And now we sort of want to attach ourselves to the valley or more so perhaps the feeling that, that is this uh, sight uh, brings within us. And this attachment, as we're drawn to this thing, whatever it may be, becomes like a continual thinking on it or being involved in it. You know, for, the, for the sake of, say, uh, nature or conservation, exactly what we could do, we might go join a land care group. We might take part in tree planting groups. We may take a major interest in the conservation of nature and we will spend more and more time involved in these things that are in and around nature or conservation or in this creation that we may see before us. And this actual attachment now that draws us in and commits us to it is actually beginning to form a source or a part of worship, a part of worship. When our thoughts and our desires and our energies regularly being drawn to something that's becoming central for our lives, like this is becoming really important, really big for me to actually go to this valley and then to get involved in planting trees and just really caring for the environment. When this begins to take a central part in our nature, this is really now starting to actually make the place of worship. Now you might think that sounds a bit strange, but really it is. And these things that that, uh, develop in our lives that draw us toward them actually have such a strong pull that we now begin to think that this thing is, could be conservation or nature, it becomes the ultimate in life. My life is all about actually caring for nature. My life is all about saving the whales. My life is all about revegetating the world. My life is all about caring for this incredible scenery that we have around about us. It begins to say that what I've now discovered brings meaning in life for me. This thing now becomes life for me. It becomes my central part. My life is now complete as I've discovered this attraction and it's drawn me towards it. And I now feel like my calling in life is to uh, take my part in doing everything I can for whatever this cause might be. And in this sense, it could be, this is why I'm a conservationist. It's my reason for being in life. And quite simply, when that sort of thought begins to take a more dominant hold in our lives, we've actually crossed the line. We've crossed the line in our minds then. And that line that we've now crossed, which could be nature, that has so grabbed my desires and affections, that it now has become my God. Or it's become my idol. My life is now being centred around this thing that has drawn me into it, and I'm now actually spending my time and energies effortlessly thinking about it and being involved with it. I've got a fantastic quote here from Tim Keller out of a great book called Counterfeit Gods. If I'm not sure whether Barb's has got it there, but we can get hold of it for you. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read this through, and you just we're going to put it up on the screen as well. So as we go through, just, just follow those words there. Tim Keller says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. An idol. It can be a family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. 
It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is fixed is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. It's a long quote, but it's very, very informative there, the way Tim Keller thinks about these things that take such a hold in our lives and take such a central focus. They become our idols or they become our gods, where we actually centre our life around this thing. And he went through a list of things there that uh, easily become idols in our lives. So with that in mind, there are millions of idols. There are millions of gods. Because we can easily, in our human mind, attach ourselves to things and it becomes the God of our life. So people who've been created to worship are craving and looking for for fulfilment in all manner of things as the meaning or ultimate in life. People are worshipping anything that they will believe will sustain them in life. Millions of gods. Millions of idols. Here's a few examples. In the global financial crisis, known as the GFC, a few years ago, there was a large number of investment managers who committed suicide when their stock market crashed. They had lost vast amounts of money and they felt for them that life was no longer worth living. They had poured hours and hours and hours into building financial portfolios only to see them evaporate in a matter of days and weeks. And many of these investment managers committed suicide. Perhaps for those gods, for those guys, their idol or god was success or money. For them, life had ultimate meaning when they were successfully making large amounts of money. And to go and spend hours and hours and hours and perhaps days in stitching up a huge financial deal was nothing. It was nothing. They didn't mind doing all that because they knew they were going to make lots of money. And as soon as the dollar started to run in, they felt fantastic. That is, till the market crashed. And for them, their life had crashed at the same time. Perhaps their idol or their god was success or money. For other people, it's being popular. And having relationships is ultimate. That is what my life is built around, having lots of relationships and being popular. They will just revel in being in the centre of attention and do all sorts of things to try and appease people to have relationships. The more people they can gather around them, the better they feel. But... When things go a little sour with the people, they crash and they burn. Their life falls apart. What's happened to my relationships? I don't feel like I'm a popular anymore. Life just feels hopeless for them when things go quiet on the friends front. Some people are driven by beauty and image as their God. That drives them to the centre of their life. Some people are driven by power or being in control. They just want to be in control. They just want to hold the power as their God. Some people are driven by religion as the meaning of life. Some people just love lots of rules to live by and disciplines to put into place. For some people, that's how it is. It becomes religion. These are gods that are very, very subtle in beginning to take control of our lives. These gods are idols that we make 
place very strong demands upon our lives and we actually become like drones that are remote controlled by these gods from a distance. It's amazing what happens, how they push us here and there as they begin to take this controlling effect upon our minds. And we think that ultimate fulfilment and meaning is found in them, that life is all about satisfying this thing that I've been drawn to and attracted by. But they let us down big time, big time. They promise big, but they deliver only mere shadows and hollow reflections of what we were truly created for. How many gods are there in this world? There are millions of gods in this world. We can make anything out of, a God, out of this world into a God of our lives. Anything. Is there one true God? The second part of that question, is there one true God? As we think about, yes, there's millions of gods in this world. Yes, there is one true God. Without a shadow of a doubt, there is one true God that stands out uh, above and beyond without any comparison to these false gods that we make in our own minds in this world. There is only one God who's designed us to worship him and to be totally fulfilled and absolutely satisfied in him as an everlasting delight. There's only one God who does that. And this one true God helps us by getting to the, actually the bottom of the cause or what's wrong with us in our lives while we've gone after these other false gods. And God does that for us through the scriptures in the Bible. So I want to take us just to a passage today as we think through this to see where everything's unraveled for humanity and why we get attracted to these false gods, false idols, and build our lives around them. Let's have a look at it here in Romans uh, chapter 1 as we see uh, Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, begin to show us this. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's just stop there. Humanity has suppressed the truth. There's a holding back of the truth here. We've actually suppressed the truth of God. Let's follow through the next verse. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has made himself known to us. How has God done that? It says there by Paul, through the things we see of this world, God's eternal powers in the creation of this world. God is there. God's created this world. The fantastic valley we we spoke about before. God's created that. God's made himself known to us. Let's follow on verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now you might ask, who's Paul talking about here? They became futile in thinking. Who's the people that Paul's talking about? Paul's talking about me. Paul's talking about you. We become futile in our thinking because we've been corrupted by sin. What does this futile or foolish thinking look like? What does it lead to? Paul goes on. Verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Very comprehensive what Paul talks about there. It's not that difficult to understand. Paul's explaining under the inspiration of God what's happened. God's made himself plain to us in this world that's around about us. We've suppressed that truth. We've actually exchanged it for something else. And what we've done is we've believed the lie instead of the truth. And what have we done then? It says there in that last verse, we now worship and serve the creature, the valleys, the trees, whatever it might be, whatever God's created, instead of the creator. That is the root problem of worship. We've exchanged the truth about God and believed the lie. So now we worship the lie instead of worshiping the truth as in God. We worship created things instead of the creator who's created them. And we refuse to acknowledge who he is and what he's done. So it's not wrong to go to the valley and be in awe of the valley. That's a great thing to do. And I know plenty of people here do that. Go on walks and you are wowed by that. So we should be. But the whole idea of the wow is to point us to the wower. To point us to God. It's a great thing to admire God's creation. But it's there to point us to the one who's created it. So we look at this thing and we say, wow, you are amazing, God. You did this with a single word. This whole idea of exchanging the truth about a lot for a lie and worshipping the creature instead of the, the creator hasn't just happened in the last couple of centuries. This is not something that you know, modern man has somehow developed. This has been going on uh, since the beginning of time. Here in uh, Exodus chapter 20, God spoke to the Israelites thousands of years ago and gave them instructions. He says this in chapter 20 verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. Straight away, God's saying, here's the problem. You actually are worshipping all these other gods. You'll have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thousands of years ago, people were looking for other gods other than the true God. It's not something that's happened just in the last few hundred years in the, in the age of enlightenment, as it were. This has been going on for uh, millennia, centuries and centuries and centuries. Since mankind has rebelled in the garden against God, uh, right back at the start of time, our nature or our hard drive has been corrupted ever since. And all we continue to keep doing is exchange that truth, exchange the truth about God, and we believe a lie. That's what's happened. We were created to revel and to delight in the God of creation as our sovereign creator. But instead, we make this exchange and we continue to settle for cheap imitations, thinking that they will satisfy us and they will fulfill us as human beings. And they never will. They never will. We think that somehow that these imitation gods will save us from a meaningless life. Somehow we think they'll become, as it were, like a a functional saviour. It's here to save me from despair. This this thing I'm attaching myself and building my life around is going to save me from a life of dissatisfaction or meaninglessness or despair in life. It can be for some people, if I can just be the most beautiful person around here, 
If I can just be the most beautiful person, I will be saved from a meaningless life. If I can worship this God of beauty, and this beauty God demands that I must look like this, and I must have a shape like that, and I must wear these clothes, and I must drive this type of car, and I must be seen in these sort of places, and I must have these type of friends. This beauty God puts all these crazy demands upon us, thinking this is where life is found. If I can look like this, if I can be associated with them, if I can drive that car. It begins to subtly um, put its clutches around us and demand these things of us to satisfy this God of beauty. So life is all about being beautiful. That's the ultimate in life. Are you for real? Is, is that what life, is that how life brings meaning to be the most beautiful person? It seems empty and hollow. The Bible again addresses this in a very sort of satirical or comical way. Isaiah had a lot of dramas with the Israelites worshipping false gods and he had this to say to them in Isaiah chapter 44. He says this, He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So a man takes a piece of wood. This is the picture here that Isaiah is giving to us. One piece of wood. Cuts it in half. One half he uses for kindling wood. He makes a fire and he cooks bacon and eggs. He's got to eat. Cooks some bacon and eggs. The other half he pulls out his Swiss army knife and he whittles it into a god. And then he bows down before it and says, You are my god. Please save me. It's comical when you think about it, isn't it? One half he's using to cook bacon and eggs and the other half all of a sudden it's become a god. But this is the way that God is trying to show us the futility of this craziness of, as it were, making these things into gods in our lives. It's a futile exercise. Now it is comical when we read that, but sadly, this is happening all over the world. Not just in, perhaps, a Swiss army knife making a totem god here, but people making all sorts of things gods and as it were, bowing down to them with their lives and allowing these things to control their lives. It's happening today. There's people all throughout Shepparton who are serving uh, any number of false gods, trying to find meaning in life, satisfaction, and they're coming up short day after day. It really, really is a mess. It really, really is a mess when we think about it, as we cling after these false gods. The one true God, though, leads us out of this mess. The one true God leads us out of this mess. God has sent his one and only son to deliver us from the deceptions of this world and the falseness and the whole exchanging of the truth for a lie that we've actually bought into. Jesus has been sent to deliver us from that. And he makes this startling statement in John chapter 14 and he says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here Jesus says, this is the way back to your Creator, the one true God 
who alone gives meaning to life. And Jesus is saying it is through me. Actually, Jesus is saying, I am the meaning of life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's a big claim. It's a really big claim. Particularly for that world that Jesus is living in, which is no different than the world we have today. They had multiple, multiple gods. Again, thousands, millions of gods. And they're saying, no, 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 there's only one way and it's through me to the one true God. A massive claim. Jesus, are you for real? Do you know what you're saying when you say this? Two things. Either Jesus is a lunatic and he's lost his marbles with insanity, if he thinks he can say that, or truly he is the Son of God who can rightly save and lead us back to the one true God. Jesus, you're either a lunatic or you are who you say you are. Well, Jesus can back up his claim. Jesus can substantiate exactly what he's saying. Jesus can actually fulfil totally what he's saying. Jesus can say, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And there is one significant event in the life of Jesus Christ that totally sets him apart from all other so-called prophets, gurus, spiritual teachers, holy men or whoever has walked the face of this earth trying to say, hey, follow me, I know the path to life. There's one event, there's one thing that has taken place that sets Jesus totally apart from all of those other ones who may have proclaimed that. And that one event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a standalone event that separates Jesus from all else. It totally puts Jesus in a league of his own. Jesus himself willingly gave up his life on a cross in place of ours. He was beaten, whipped, scourged, spat upon and crucified cruelly on a Roman cross. His body was placed in a sealed tomb after he had died. Three days later, after the death of Christ, where he is well and truly dead, Jesus totally defies the law of death. Jesus walks out of a sealed tomb. When I say a sealed tomb, there's a very large rock they place across the hole of this tomb and no man on his own can push that rock out of the road. It's a a multiple man um, to do that. Jesus walks out of that tomb, that sealed tomb, fully alive. Fully alive. And there are a multitude of witnesses. The Bible itself speaks of 500 witnesses who have seen the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ. Nobody does that. Nobody defies the law of death and walks out of a grave or a tomb. Nobody can do that on their own power, can they? Think of any other person who has ever done that. Nobody can do that. Except unless you are God. Except unless you are God. And that's exactly what the resurrection does. It comprehensively testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Paul says it for us again in Romans. Read with me the first few verses here in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So he's talking about Jesus, a real flesh and blood person. This is a human being just like us. But he is now being referred to as the Son of God. And in verse 4 he says this, and was declared to be the Son of God. So there's like, here's a direct referral. Jesus, the Son of God. Declared to be the Son of God. Follow on. 
declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. And how did this happen? Or how is this declaration made complete? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says it there. The resurrection of the dead categorically states here and substantiates that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God. The resurrection puts it beyond doubt who Jesus is. He is God. The resurrection makes all the difference. It totally changes everything. The disciples of Jesus were radically different men after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Totally different, totally transformed, totally changed. They spent three years with Jesus, wandering around Palestine, seeing him do miraculous things, all types of miracles, raising people from the dead, opening up blind eyes and deaf ears, walking on water, calming storms. Jesus was only doing the things that God could do. They've witnessed this for three years, but now Jesus is dead and locked away in the tomb. The disciples have thought all hope is gone. All hope is totally lost. They are devastated men. They are shattered men filled with despair. Jesus is in the tomb. We thought he was the one. He has done all these things, but now he's locked away in this tomb. We're thinking, that's it. Our hopes are dashed. Their last image of Jesus is seeing him, as it were, butchered and battered, an unrecognisable man on the cross. Uh, pictures would not do it any justice at all to see how Jesus was. The last these disciples were, saw of him was that Jesus is dead. Dead, dead. What? Three days later? He's alive? Are you serious? This Jesus has conquered death? He truly is the Son of God. These disciples, as they spent that next 40 days with Jesus after the resurrection, were radically, radically, radically changed. Tradition tells us that all but one of these disciples, these original 12 disciples, went to martyrs' deaths, horribly executed, all of them but one. Some were dipped in boiling oil, some were crucified, some were cut in two. There was all manner of executions taking place on these disciples. And each one willingly, each one willingly gave up their life and basically staked their claim upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had seen the risen Christ who had defied death and who was God in the flesh and lives forevermore. And they spent the rest of their days preaching this gospel, telling people to give up worshipping these false gods and to turn to the one true living God. And all but one, as tradition would tell us, sealed that by giving their life away and uh, being martyred for their faith. Today we have the same message. It's the same message that we are proclaiming today that what Paul and the other apostles are proclaiming 2,000 years ago. We have religious groups and cults and all types of things all over the world with their prophets and their gurus and their holy men saying, follow us. This is the path to life. Follow me. I know where I'm going. I will lead you to peace, health and prosperity. That's happening every day all over the place. Get on Google and you'll find plenty of it there. But every one of those leaders of any of those cults or religious groups, all of those Eastern religions, any one of them, you will find them today as a pile of dust in a grave somewhere. Not one of those leaders could actually substantiate their claims. Not one of those so-called gurus or holy men or prophets 
could fulfill exactly what they proclaimed. They lie in a grave as a pile of dust and ashes. Jesus, the Son of God, alone, totally alone, the one true God, has fulfilled exactly what he proclaimed. In that sense, he can truly say, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Massive categorical statement that Jesus makes. There are millions of gods in this world. They are literally millions of gods. And they are all vying for and trying to get their clutches around our lives to serve and worship these gods. Money, beauty, sex, control, self-image, religion, popularity, sport, marriage, family, and a whole host of other self-made gods that we are sort of gravitating towards. And what will these gods do? They will get you like a puppet on a string and they will just jerk you around as they put these demands upon your life and force you into certain lifestyles because you've got to serve this God to think that's where life is. Always promising, always promising, giving you little sort of puffs of smoke of satisfaction, but then it evaporates and disappears. Or you can serve and worship the one true living God. And in that you will discover who you were created to be. You will discover the source of all joy, of peace and contentment as you discover the one true living God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who are you worshipping today? What are you worshipping today? What is central in your life? What consumes your thoughts? What do you find your mind easily just gravitates to when it's in so-called neutral position? What is something that continually attracts your desires and becomes central in your life? What is the most important thing that seems to keep pulling you in a certain direction? You need to ask yourself, what are you worshipping? What are you devoting yourself towards? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you today uh, for the truth of your word. Thank you today that you are the one true God. Thank you today that uh, Jesus, you came as the one true God into this world to liberate us and set us free from these false gods and these idols that we uh, continually deceived by and fooled by. Thank you today that you could make that statement You could boldly proclaim and say, I am the way and the truth and the life that no man comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus, you could totally fulfill that, totally substantiate that. Father, thank you today that you are a God of grace and mercy that sets us free from these false gods or these false idols that control our lives, that sink their claws and their clutches all over us in a very deceptive and subtle manner. We think we're finding life but we're just finding more bondage and more laws and more dramas in our life. God, today I pray that you would lift that deception from our minds, that you would do that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would do that through the power of the gospel, and you would do that by revealing Jesus Christ in our lives. Who does set us free? He was the one who said, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So God, we pray today 
that the truth of your gospel would break into our hearts and our lives and it would set us free from the bondages that these false gods and these false idols put upon us. Thank you, Father, that you give us the strength in that process of breaking the holes that these idols put upon us and that day by day your spirit strengthens and empowers us. Today, Lord, I pray, let us not be deceived any longer. God, let us see through uh, the lies that these gods would feed into our minds. Let us stop exchanging the truth for a lie. Let's exchange the, the lie for the truth now. Let's put the lie out. Let's bring the truth back into our hearts, I pray. Well, God, we thank you that you've done this great reversal uh, through Christ. Help us today, Lord. Help us to proclaim this truth, I pray as well. Father, we, uh, we do ask that. We do pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.